Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Fortin's patriotism was birthed from being black in a white society uh, that was skeptical, at best, of allowing African Americans a place in it. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Adam Zielinski discussing the amazing life of Philadelphia's James Fortin. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases— the Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Adam Zielinski, and he'll be telling the story of the amazing life of Philadelphia's James Fortin. When we study the American Revolution, we tend to focus on the big characters, the characters that seem to have the greatest impact on the outcome of the war and shaping the politics and policy of the period. But when we do that, we often overlook the characters that may reveal to us a little more about the time period than we ever imagined. And one of them is Philadelphia's James Fortin. James Fortin was an African-American man living in revolutionary Philadelphia. He had a front row seat for many of the major events of the period, and he also accomplished an amazing life of his own that's often overlooked. Adam Zielinski makes sure that the spotlight gets put where it belongs. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Adam Zielinski. Adam Zielinski, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me this evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Adam, tell us about your background. Sure. Um, Let's see. Well, I have a master's degree in museum studies. Um, for the last five years, uh, I worked for the American Battlefield Trust. I served as the uh, first Rev War fellow with the trust uh, up until this past winter. Um, that involved researching, uh, writing, and editing uh, dozens of articles um, that are all available on their website. Um, I also had a hand in creating uh, 80 scripts for their animated uh, history videos that can also be found on their YouTube page. And um, I also was involved in uh, creating interpretive science for Brandywine Battlefield through them. So I did a little bit of everything uh, with the trust, and it was a wonderful experience. And I'm uh, eternally grateful for uh, the opportunity with them. Um, Outside the trust, I worked with the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia uh, on their exhibit on uh, New Jersey women losing the right to vote in 1807. in my role as a vice president of the Red War Alliance of Burlington County, uh, I helped design a new monument for the Battle of Ironworks Hill in Mount Holly. Uh, that's the subject of one of the articles I've written for the JAR. Um, and I've also uh, designed some interpretive uh, signage at various spots in the county uh, that speak of the Revolutionary War history here in Jersey. And uh, for that work, we've been recognized by both state and national elected officials. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, lastly, uh, I create uh, hand-drawn maps of battles and uh, townships from the 18th century 
Um, they're great visual tools, you know, for uh, lectures and programs. And uh, I've gathered a lot of interest um, from local schools and, and teachers and, um, you know, using them as resources. And uh, I'm actually in the process of setting up an Etsy page uh, to sell my work. So I'm hoping to have that up by the end of the summer. Um, and aside from that, lastly, I'm a collector of 18th century documents. And I have a private uh, library of 2,000 books. Uh, luckily, my wife is a librarian and a history nerd like me, so um, I'm certainly lucky, lucky in that respect. What first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I first read about uh, James Fort a few years back um, while doing research work uh, for the Battlefield Trust. Um, you know, at the time, I was writing a few articles on uh, African-American uh, participation during the war and really diving deep uh, to flesh, um, you know, fleshed out some of the individual stories that often get relegated to uh, footnotes. You know, of course, um, it's no fault for trying. I know um, a lot of these men and women are footnotes because there's so little information that exists about them and their stories. Um, but Fortin's different, you know. His story is so remarkable that it, it practically leaps out of the pages anywhere he's mentioned. And um, I, it was very noticeable uh, you know, in my, my research work then, um, I can remember, uh, I think it was Gary Nash's uh, Racing uh, Revolution it was probably the first place um, I read a good summary of Fortin's uh, story, albeit it was focused more on his uh, pivot to uh, abolitionist politics um, than his service during the war. And then, you know, coming through other um, books like the Kaplan's um, Black Presence in the Era of the American Revolution, um, I just kept finding Fortin's name and, you know, each with each new uh, book that I found his name in, there would be uh, bits more, you know, filling in the holes that were left um, left by other writers. So I, I was kind of picking up more and more on his story as I discovered more works. And then eventually I found uh, Julie Winch's A Gentleman of Color, which I believe is the first biography uh, to exclusively focus on uh, James Fortin. And I think it does a fantastic job of uh, laying out the details of his life, uh, specifically, um, you know, his early life and his service during the war. And, um, you know, without her work, I think we'd all be uh, still struggling to piece everything together. It certainly helped me fill out his profile, uh, you know, to write the article. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful for it because I'm not going to claim in, in this uh, conversation to have his story down cold. Um, I've only really dipped my toes into the life of James Fortin, and I, uh, I, I certainly don't want to speak or come off as, um, you know, being too well versed in his life. Uh, I find him fascinating and uplifting, but I haven't researched his life beyond writing a few articles on him. Um, so there's that. Plus, we share the same birthday, so what's not to like, right? <laughs> Tell us about the Fortin family. Sure. So it appears uh, his family was involved, uh, believe it or not, in the Philadelphia slave trade, uh, at least through his aunt. Um, I'm sure this is shocking to some, um, but this was not necessarily uncommon for uh, free African-Americans to trade in slaves if they had the means to do so. Um, but regardless, it certainly adds a unique layer to Fortin's backstory, uh, given his life's work and legacy. Uh, his father, who was a free man, uh, worked in the sail loft of Robert Bridges. Uh, it appears they were friends or at least respectable acquaintances that uh, Bridges brought Thomas Fortin with him when he opened his own business. Uh, Thomas had married a free woman of color named Margaret uh, Weymouth, and James had an older sister named Abigail. So it was 
um, you know, a stable family situation uh, for uh, the first few years of uh, Fortin's life. Um, Fortin uh, was twice married. Uh, his second marriage to Charlotte uh, Van Dyne produced nine children, uh, many of whom became abolitionists themselves. Uh, his son-in-law, Robert Purvis, became one of his strongest allies. Um, Purvis himself uh, came from a mixed-race parentage and uh, could pass as white, but chose to identify as black. And uh, he founded the American Anti-Slavery Society with William Lloyd Garrison. And Garrison is probably best known uh, in American history for being the editor of the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, which Fortin helped finance. Adam, what do we know about James Fortin's early life? Sure. Um, so as I said a second ago, uh, up until the moment his father passed away, he did grow up in a stable household. Uh, his father you know, had uh, a means of income to provide for the household. And also um, they were uh, given um, some financial support uh, from his aunt's uh, estate when she passed away. So there was some money there to support. But obviously, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't enough uh, to carry them through life uh, by any means. Um, after his father died in 1773, uh, his mo mother struggled to find the means, uh, you know, to provide for the two children. Um, at this point, James did receive a brief education uh, from from family friend Anthony Benazet, who uh, at the time was emerging as Philadelphia's first prominent white abolitionist voice. And uh, Benazet, in particular, made it his mission to provide education to black children. So Fortin just happened to be one of his earliest pupils. And eventually, Benazet found uh, Fortin a job with a local grocer. So one can speculate that Fortin's upbringing, you know, around the docks of Philadelphia, uh, familiar with ships and nautical language, you know, hearing from his father, um, a brief education that, you know, bore him literate, and his time working, you know, small jobs in the city, you know, this boy was clearly gifted with an astute personality. And um, by all accounts, it won him friends and opportunities wherever he went. And as I write in the article, um, I think his most dramatic moment from his childhood, especially from our perspective as scholars of the period, is that he witnessed the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in the courtyard of the Pennsylvania State House, which is now Independence Hall. Um, you know, he seized on the moment and was inspired by the words he heard. And what's more, he understood those words, you know, perhaps from the vantage of a young black American or just that of an American, you know, whatever uh, that word American meant in those heady days of July 1776. But regardless, it's pretty incredible for a nine-year-old boy of any skin color, you know. Could you tell us about how he was taken prisoner? Sure. So Fortin, um, he enlisted aboard the privateer uh, Royal Louis in the summer of 1781. Uh, he was a cabin boy and, uh, you know, helped keep, keep the ship clean and pretty much together. Um, he would also carry munitions back and forth during naval battles. And uh, the Royal Louis returned to Philadelphia in late summer, uh, August, uh, to be specific. Um, and it had a successful outing uh, in its first outing. And while in Philadelphia on his 14th birthday, uh, Fortin actually happened to see uh, General Washington and the Continental Army march through the city on their way down to Yorktown. And uh, Fortin recalled later seeing many outfitted African-American soldiers, you know, in formation. And these happened to be the first Rhode Islanders, you know, mostly uh, black regiment. Uh, you know, though, to be clear, the Continental Army was not segregated. Um, but regardless, you know, the the sight of uh, seeing these soldiers obviously uh, left a lifelong impression on uh, Fortin. 
Um, within a few weeks, the Royal Louis returned to sea. Um, but unfortunately, her fate was uh, much different this time around. Uh, the British, um, their ships were everywhere off the Delaware coast, and uh, the Royal Louis was eventually captured by a large uh, British warship. Now, its captain, John Baisley, had aboard his two sons, and the younger son had really nothing to do because he was too young to be of any use. Um, so Captain Baisley selected Fortin to be pretty much his son's play buddy or friend, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And uh, while Fortin was a natural at the game of marbles, and as he was playing uh, with Baisley's son, his skill prompted uh, the son to, you know, go fetch his father, bring him over and watch Fortin play. Uh, Captain Baisley uh, then discovered, you know, um, during this interaction that Fortin was actually literate. And apparently it impressed him so much that he granted Fortin special privileges while captain aboard the ship. And in this moment or within you know a day or so, um, Baisley then offered Fortin the opportunity to return to England with his young son in order to receive a full paid English education as a free man. And um, I think I make this clear in the article. You know, this is really that moment where Fortin's story, you know, perhaps inspires the patriotism in all of us, um, because despite his situation and the obvious uh, advantageous opportunity, uh, he turned down the offer and he said he would not betray his country. And this is coming from a 14 year old boy. So he was, again, someone who witnessed the declaration and was fully well aware of uh, circumstances uh, to the best of his ability. And he turned down the opportunity, um, you know, to go elsewhere. So Fortin, uh, along with his fellow captives, were taken to Brooklyn Harbor and put aboard the infamous prison ship Jersey. And, uh, you know, he spent the next seven months of his life on that <laughs> stinking heap of death, as uh, I think we all agree it was. What was life like after his release? Yeah, so after his release, um, he walked home from Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn rather. Uh, imagine that. Uh, his mother and sister had uh, left him for dead uh, after reading in the newspaper the fate of his ship. So they were, you know, completely stunned to see him uh, walk through the front door uh, in, in a rather, uh, obviously, terrible condition. But nonetheless, he was alive. Um, in 1785, uh, Fortin actually sailed for London and spent a year overseas. Uh, little is known about his exact whereabouts and uh, what he did over there, because for uh, whatever reason, there's really no details of his trip um, that have survived. And um, that would be an interesting uh, point of research, I'm sure, for uh, future scholars. Um, but anyway, uh, when he did return from London, uh, he began working in the sail off the Robert Bridges, um, the same person who had employed his father. And uh, within a year, uh, Fortin went from an entry-level worker to foreman. You know, that alone, I think, speaks of his abilities. Uh, he continued a steady climb through the ranks of the business, uh, apparently not, you know, from favoritism, but because of his talents and leadership. And then by 1798, Bridges wanted out and offered the business to Fortin. Um, and he was able to buy it with the help of uh, Philadelphia financier uh, Thomas Willing. Adam, what do you consider to be his greatest success in life? Um, you know, I, I think he really uh, shines through for many reasons. Um, I, you know, the way I, I think about it is, you know, one could look at his career, you know, in the sail loft and, and say, wow, you know, how could this man of color become so wealthy at this time in American history? Um, you know, for some, I think that alone is perhaps his greatest success. Uh, for others, it's, you know, it, it's probably 
likely, you know, the, the shadow of influence that he uh, cast over the early abolitionist movement um, because he used his wealth to support as many projects as he could. And, you know, he recognized his, his duty and responsibility um, because of the position he was in, that unique position, his background, obviously himself being African-American and uh, being a lifelong citizen of Philadelphia. Um, he certainly didn't have to do these things. And there was a tremendous risk in doing so, you know, and doing so, he, he, he couldn't be too provocative about it. You know, he had to remain in good standing uh, with the largely white powers that be. And uh, I know some might take issue with that framing, but it's the reality of his time. And he was wise enough to recognize it and work through it. Um, and, and in keeping uh, that kind of public profile, he carried an air of respect and legitimacy that went unmatched. How does his story end? Yeah, there's actually um, a couple tidbits uh, that I found uh, pretty, uh, you know, pretty remarkable. Um, well, first, you know, he worked tirelessly up until the very end of his life uh, for abolition um, and also for educating um, the young black community in Philadelphia. Um, in 1840, uh, he successfully challenged the Philadelphia Board of Education uh, after they temporarily shuttered the Lombard Street School uh, that was uh, solely educating uh, black youth. Um, his health failed him later that year. And uh, perhaps one of the finer stories uh, that author Julie Winch uh, brings to light in her book was the return of Daniel Bruton uh, to visit Fortin as he lay in bed dying. Uh, in my article, I mentioned that uh, Bruton was the white Philadelphian that uh, Fortin had given his place to escape aboard the Jersey in 1781. So now, 60 years later, the lifelong friends, you know, they meet one last time. And uh, by all accounts, it was an emotional goodbye. And I think it speaks to the power of friendship uh, and connection. You know, here's two men who survived uh, such a traumatic ordeal that they would re remain friends for the rest of their lives. Um, so Fortin dies on March 4th, uh, 1841. Uh, and he was said to be cheerful, um, in a cheerful mood, rather, and surrounded by friends and family. You know, he had accepted his fate and uh, seemingly left everyone around him with a sense of gratitude for his warmth, uh, love, uh, his friendship and influence. And once again, quoting from uh, Winch's book, um, you know, the funeral was attended by crowds of Philadelphia citizens not seen in recent memory. Uh, you know, so here, you know, somebody passes away, one of the city's uh, most well-known citizens and thousands of people from all, you know, aspects of life, black and white, they come out and pay the respects. And I think it really uh, shows um, the respect that many people had for Fortin's character that whether they knew him personally, you know, just of his work or were there just to be a part of, um, you know, the passing of such a man of influence, um, you know, his, his legacy, um, was that such that he could draw that kind of attention. And, uh, and to that last point, you know, his legacy lived on with his family and their work uh, for abolition and civil rights in the decades after his death. And uh, one point uh, to that is, you know, the, the main focus of the Museum of the American Revolution's current uh, exhibit on Fortin and his family, and I do emphasize this in my article, you know, it's really about uh, family, the exhibit and the lasting influence of its patriarch, which is James Fortin. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? 
You know, I think, I think he demonstrates what patriotism looks like from a perspective that many audiences might misunderstand. You know, Fortin's patriotism was birthed from being black in a white society uh, that was skeptical at best of allowing African-Americans a place in it. You know, he clearly was surrounded by a loving and supportive family with early friends like Anthony uh, Benezet, who tutored him, uh, as demonstrated by his outward literacy. This early education reinforces the power that comes with being educated, you know, and it was that power uh, combined with his own individual talents and will to persevere uh, that were inspiring then and now, you know, Fortin believed so. And uh, prioritizing the education of black children in Philadelphia was the main focus of his uh, philanthropy. Um, But his patriotism was a calculated one, as I mentioned ago, because of his place in a white society. You know, despite being a a successful businessman and one of the wealthiest citizens in Philadelphia, he was still well aware that his activism had limits. You know, remember that brief moment of white scrutiny over slavery that befell the founding generation in the 1780s had largely died out by the end of the century. And the 19th century saw institutionalized slavery and racism taking on new forms that made being a free man of color, you know, even a very successful and influential one, dangerous. And Philadelphia, for being as progressive in many respects as it was during the 1790s, uh, retreated from this progress in the decades after, uh, at the height of uh, Fortin's power and influence. You know, look at the the burning of uh, Pennsylvania Hall in uh, May of uh, 1838 by an anti-abolitionist mob. You know, that's one of many episodes showing how tumultuous the battle over slavery had become, even in a place like uh, Philadelphia. So it's no coincidence that uh, then that he saw his retreat from uh, this retreat from racial progress as his life's mission, you know. And who better to speak on behalf of the ideals and principles of the revolution than someone who was there when the declaration was first publicly read, you know, and then fell prisoner after refusing to turn his back on his own country. Um, So some of us like to romanticize the revolution um, as being this force for good. And it certainly did uh, bring about some of those elements. But ideals have their limitations when they run into reality. You know, the United States was birthed being this new opportunity in the world. And that meant very different things to different people. It still does today. You know, perhaps the revolution's greatest success was allowing that versatility in its creed. So, you know, it's no small feat that the founders unintentionally, in my opinion, uh, unleashed a Pandora's box that no one in 1776 could fathom how it would reshape the world. So, Americans like James Fortin lived in that world and not only, you know, made it their own, but did their best to ensure their fellow Americans lived up to a set of principles that did not come easy in an era uh, increasingly shaped by skin color and a prejudice towards it. Adam Zielinski, thanks again. Thanks so much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.